Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is October 21st, 2014. This is episode 1449 of the Survival Podcast. We're going to talk about seed saving and land races today with a cool guy named Justin Hewn. I'll have him on in just a moment. Before we do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today, Backwoods Home Magazine. You know... They're, they're the easiest company I endorse for me to endorse. Why? I subscribed to them in two, uh, 1994. It is 2014. That would be 20 years. I'm still a subscriber. Need I say more? Well, if I need to say more, if you're not a subscriber, for new subscribers through the Member Support Brigade, they have a special deal. You'll find out about that in the benefits section of the Member Support Brigade. Everybody else, just check out BackwoodsHome.com. Amazing source of information. Imagine if Mother Earth, Earth News was run by libertarians. It's kind of sort of what it's like, except even far more productive than that. Check them out today, BackwoodsHome.com. Next up today, KnifeKits.com. We're rapidly turning into a nation that doesn't know how to do things. A nation that calls a guy for everything. You know, making knives is not just a cool skill to have. It teaches you how to use tools. It teaches you how to craft things. And what son or daughter doesn't want to make a knife with dad or even with mom? Come on, guys. It's a great way, low-cost way, to start improving your skills. If you're not sure what to do, you can get books and DVDs along with your kits. If you're really not sure what to do, pick up the phone and call them. They're great people. They'll help you make a good selection for your first project. And you know, it might turn into a lifelong endeavor. You never know. But it can be easy with kit models, or you can make really complex, cool stuff if you're a master bladesmith. They have things like Mammoth Tusk Horn. I have a knife made out of that. Mammoth Tusk uh, Ivory, actually. I have a, a knife made out of that by Patrick Rorman at MT Knives. Uh, Cape Buffalo Horn, Damascus Steel, you name it, they've got it. Check them out, knifekits.com, and they do a discount for members of the Support Brigade as well. Next up today, I want to remind you about that Member Support Brigade. It is how you can help support this show at about two dimes an episode. When you get done with an episode of this, if you think that's worth 20 cents, uh, the math actually works out to 18.3 cents. So consider joining. All the discounts I give you will give you a great ROI on your investment of 50 bucks a year or five bucks a month. And if you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, or prior service, or first responder, like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, all of you do qualify for a discount. Just email me with service discount in the subject line and tell me about your service in one or two sentences. Do so before, not after you join. I'll send you the discount code to thank you for your service. And with that, let us talk about the year that was the episode really quick before I get Justin on. We have three today. China's Great Wall and the Lost Emperor. Say hello to my little friend, Monster Meg. And the English get spanked by the French again. That makes me think of... Your father, your mother was a hamster and your father was of elderberries, right? Um, I'm not going to talk about the English and the French today, but I want you to think about this. This is the year 1449. In 1776, the United States of America will be formed under the const, or the uh, Declaration of Independence. And they will, uh, then the colonies will then fight for their freedom and independence from England. And they will seek an alliance with France that eventually will happen. The French and the English are still enemies in the 1700s. This is 300 plus years prior. 
So a lot going on there, and we'll hear a lot more about it over the years to come. But right now I'm going to read China's Great Wall and the Lost Emperor because there's some wisdom here. Well, a lack of it that we can use to derive our own wisdom. The previous Chinese emperor has spent a lot of treasure and manpower building up the border wall. We know it as the Great Wall of China. Unfortunately, any wall is a waste of bricks if it isn't part of a more comprehensive defensive plan. The Mongols have mounted a three-pronged attack, and Emperor Zitong is leading his army to defend the wall. That's what you got to do, defend the wall. Before he leaves, he appoints his brother as regent and sets out with his troops. Following the border and risking his flank, he arrives in time to repel the attack, but is on his way back. He, the Emperor repeats the risky move and comes too close to the border. Rather than lead his army over his own lands, armies can be destructive as they trample through your garden. A small army of 5,000 Mongols wipes out the emperor's forces of 500,000, takes him captive. His brother, the regent, ransoms him and holds him under the house arrest for several years. Zetong will be given the title of Grand Emperor. That will be quite grand, but not really Emperor. My take by Alex Shrug, how can 5,000 Mongols destroy an army of 500,000 Chinese led by their emperor? The most direct problem is that the emperor's 22 years old. With very little military experience, he strings out his forces parallel to the border, allowing the Mongols to strike at any point and be devastating locally. Next, the position of commander-in-chief was abolished because it was a threat to the emperor. See, tyrants always fear the military that serves them. Always. Just so you know, right? Wars are not run, are run directly by the emperor, or troop movements are decided by a committee from the capital. Think about that. How long does it take to get a message across a few hundred miles about where to move your troops? Duh. Alex says, I am reminded of the Vietnam War when President Johnson was picking bombing targets from D.C. Finally, armies are supplied by local communities, which means the army is often poorly supplied, if not starving. The Chinese will be throwing up another line of walls. It will almost be the death of them, almost. My take by Jack Spearco, number one, politicians exist to determine when military force needs to be applied. Militaries exist to determine how to apply that force. Now, you know, a government can say things like, we want to minimize this or we don't want to do that. They need to take guidance from the military and give guidance back to the military. But in the end, once an operation is approved, it needs to be run by a military. They're the ones who know how to do it. Politicians don't. They usually don't know how to do jack diddly crap. That's why they're politicians. If they knew how to do anything, they'd have a real job instead of being on the payroll of all the people that actually control the government. I don't care if you go back to this time in history. It's always been money that's controlled governments, and it always will be. That's my take by Jack Spearco. I do have one other thing to point out, though. I don't think 5,000 Mongols actually destroyed 5,000 Chinese-led troops. I think they killed a whole shitload of them, and the rest of them were hungry, starving, pissed off, and when the emperor went down, they all ran away. Because it was better to run away than end up dead with an arrow in your head. That's what I think. Anyway, with that, let's get us to the uh, main topic of today's show. I have just Justin Hewn on. He's a really cool guy. His website is called theseedkeepers.com. He's here to talk about saving seed, the role of actually using hybrid seeds, developing land land races, land races, and more. And with that, hey, Justin, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks a lot, Jack. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm glad to have you on. Uh, your website is called theseedkeepers.com, so clearly you're into uh, saving seeds and teaching people about that. I find a lot of the people we have on the air, like, you know, didn't grow up dreaming one day I'm going to save seeds, 
right? They they grew up, you know, want to be an astronaut or a, I don't know, their <laughs> nose or whatever. And it's it's always interesting to try to connect with the audience, like how you got to where you are, because most almost every guest that I've talked to has like kind of this crooked path. So you could just give us the yeah. elevator speech. How did how did Justin get into saving seeds and doing it, you know, as a business? Uh, yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, I'll uh, I'll try to make a somewhat long story uh, kind of short. Um, I'm, I've always been a really passionate gardener and have always been really, really passionate about subsistence. Um, from the very early stages of gardening, I had a tiny little plot in my rented suburban backyard, just a little like four by eight raised bed. And I clearly remember the first night having dinner with an onion from the garden and, uh, a couple of potatoes and an artichoke. Um, all from the very first garden. And from that moment, I was like, this is awesome. I want to keep doing this. And my gardens just grew from there. Um, I moved to the town that I'm living in now. Uh, it's called Ojai. It's in Southern California, um, between like the Santa Barbara area and Los Angeles. It's a bit inland, so it has really hot summers, a little bit cooler winters than the coast. Um, and when I was in Ojai, I was, I was still had a garden at the place that I was renting. And uh, two friends of mine and I got an opportunity to just rent an acre of land. Um, just came to us kind of randomly, not intentionally at all. And we decided that we were going to start growing food on that land without really much of a plan, uh, without any real set goals. This is uh, five, about, let's see, five years ago, um, a little more than five years ago. And so we had this acre of land. It was really affordable, so we didn't need to uh, produce anything right away necessarily. And uh, all of us were really passionate about uh, subsistence and hand cultivation in particular. We didn't own a tractor. None of us had any experience farming, just kind of hobby gardeners at that point. And so we started just going out there one day a week, um, with hand tools, with spades and digging forks, shovels and rakes, and like started digging and started planting uh, just vegetables that we like to eat and we like to grow. Um, and within, let's see, that was September 2009. By December, by the solstice that same year, we had such an abundance of food that we started a CSA program. Um, and a CSA, in case uh, your listeners aren't familiar, is, stands for Community Supported Agriculture. <clears throat> and what that is is a program where uh, members of the community support uh, a farmer directly by paying him or her for the year or for the season or for the month up front. And then they uh, come and, and they get a share of whatever the farmer is growing and harvesting every week. So we started that. We started a CSA just a few months in. And within six months, had 25 members or so um, that we were producing food for on a weekly basis, all with pan cultivation. And so that was that was a pretty profound experience right there, just seeing how much food we could grow by hand. Um, so that's kind of the beginning. The farm was called Mono Farm. It still exists. I'm not farming on the farm this year, but it's associated with the seed company that uh, we ended up starting, which I'll tell you about in a minute. Um, M-A-N-O, Mono Farm. It's in Ojai. And, um, but there's a Mono, M-O-N-O. I'm like, that's not... No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been mistaken a couple times. Mono, M-A-N-O, like uh, hand in Spanish, as in like hand cultivated. Mano. Yeah. Mono. 
Yeah, and and mono, it was called Mono Farm before we actually started there. There was another farmer there years before, but when we showed up, it was just a patch of dirt, essentially. Gotcha. Um, and so we had had success growing food um, by hand, and at the time we were doing like a biointensive style double digging, um, which was obviously, according to the name, and in reality, very intensive and very labor-intensive we ended up eventually not growing in that style, but that really produced a lot of food for us. And about a year and a half into it, there were a number of things that kind of converged that really solidified my personal interest in um, in seeds. And those were that we, we started growing and saving seeds just kind of on a whim initially. Um, we did it for a few crops. Um, and then we did our first intentional seed crop was a kale, this variety called fizz kale. We had originally gotten the seed from territorial seed, uh, sowed it in the fall and harvested a seed crop in the spring. And we did it. That was our very first intentional seed crop. So by what I mean uh, with intentional is that we paid attention to uh, the individuals in the breeding population. So we we didn't just let the whole thing go. We did a little bit of selection, you know, cut out plants that were kind of funky looking or didn't weren't producing very well or didn't taste that good. We ended up with a population of maybe 75 plants that went to seed. And the seed was just absolutely gorgeous, like really big, fat seed. We ended up, I think, harvesting two or three pounds of seed from these plants, which was really profound at that time because we were starting to spend a lot of money on seed um, uh, farming. And so when we harvested that seed and we replanted it, uh, we were just so amazed at how fast it germinated. It was just like, it was up in a couple of days and it was just growing with such vigor. Um, and we just started growing from our own seed at that point, starting with that kale crop. And we're just really, really excited about what we were seeing. And at the same time of noticing that, we were like, well, why isn't the seed we're buying for the most part doing this? <laughs> and so we just kept going. We just kept saving seeds and it got more and more intentional. And at the same time, I was also reading a book called Gardening When It Counts. I know you've had Steve Solomon, the author of that book on the show. Yep. Um, and so there was a part in his book where he, you know, he started Territorial Seed Company and... Um, a part in his book where he was discussing how, uh, let's see, I think there was somebody in kind of a corporate seed company who had taken him under his wing and was showing him the ropes. And he told him that the home gardener was considered a, a non-critical trade, by which he meant the large seed companies know that home gardeners are not going to hold the seed company accountable 99% of the time. So they'll plant a seed that they purchase. Let's say it's just off a rack from Home Depot or Tractor Supply or whatever. And um, they plant the seed. It's, it's, as long as the seed sprouts, everything that happens after that, the home gardener will almost always blame themselves for, whether it's a success or a failure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I was reading this. I was like, wow. So this, a lot of the seed that we were buying, I mean, we were starting to order from pretty legitimate like mail order companies, but we were also getting stuff off the rack that just looked cute and we wanted to grow it or whatever. Um, and so we're like, all right, so these seed companies, some of these bigger companies might actually not even care how good quality that seed is. 
and compared to the quality that we're seeing and what we're growing, that really turned a switch for me. And I really was kind of at that point just had the feeling like I want to do this. I want to grow seed and grow good seed and make it available. And so at that point as well, we were starting to do um, seed trials. So we would not only with our own saved seed, but we would buy the same variety of seed from two different companies and grow them side by side. And that was when it was like, yeah, this is really a thing now. Okay, these two we planted, I remember it was uh, pepper seed from two different companies. Um, I don't know if you want me to mention the companies or not. They're both companies I generally support, but this particular crop, was uh, one was great and That's one fine. was not. Uh, what's that? That's fine. You can yeah, say so it was, one was from uh, Terroir Seeds, which I know, I think you've had uh, Steve on the show? Several times, Yeah, yes. Steve's great. Um, so the Terroir Seeds and then the other seeds were from Baker Creek. And uh, terroir seeds, um, they sprouted really quick. And this was a shishito pepper. So peppers, you know, they're not always the fastest germinators. And um, these came up, I think, in about eight or ten days from terroir. And they were two inches tall before the first ones for Baker Creek even germinated. And um, and I'm, I'm not saying this is like a, a, a total, you know, judgment of Baker Creek. They have some really, really awesome heirloom varieties you can't find anywhere else. Yeah. So for the sake of maintaining and uh, uh, keeping a wide gene pool available to the public, they're doing incredible stuff. Um, this particular one, just I just saw the two differences and was like, wow, there's something here. So I guess this is kind of turning into a long story. Um so we just started growing really intentionally as many seed crops as we could with as many, you know, whether or not we knew that the variety of the species was good in our climate to grow for seed. We just went for it, had a number of failures, but a lot of successes. And we ended up starting a seed company called All Good Things Organic Seeds. Um, we started that in 2011, and that is still up and running. And it, it was formed out of just our passion for, for making quality seed available and so that's kind of that's the long story of how i got the seed bug and it continues and now the the website the project i'm working on now the seed keepers is mainly focused on seed saving education is this why you feel it's so important that everybody be saving their own seed because i think you know uh the people you mentioned jerry gettle's been on the the show as well they would tell you we do our best to make every packet of seeds you buy a good packet of seeds and And we are the source for, you know, keeping these genetics available. We work with all these growers. And the reality is when you're buying, let's say, a packet of seeds mm-hmm. from any seed mm-hmm. store, and they've harvested 20 pounds of pepper seed, and you're getting a sixteenth of an ounce. Right. You could get the best of that batch, or you could get the, you know, the, 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 the runs. Hopefully you've bought enough that you get some of everything and get whatever the the batch is supposed to put out. But in the end, most of the heirloom companies would tell you, your best seed's always going to come off your own property. We're just your starting point, and where when you you have a a crop failure, or you need a new infusion of genetics, or you want to try something new, we're the source for that. Absolutely. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, And, you know, anytime anytime, uh, uh, the source of seed scales up in like you mentioned 20 pounds of pepper seed you know that's true like that's a really big grow out of pepper seed and there's obviously going to be uh some better seed and some worse seed within that batch so 
uh, that doesn't mean that that's even even the the worst seed of a lot of produced seed. You can still produce something great and still have a basis, a genetic base to grow from at that point. Um, and absolutely, yeah, every seed company can tell you you're going to get your best seed growing your own. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that could kind of lead into the next thing if you wanted to. But, um, yeah, absolutely. I encourage every gardener, every single gardener to try to grow seed, no matter how much land you have. If you have an acre or you have, you know, a sixteenth of an acre in your backyard or just a single little little raised bed, you can still save seeds from the self-pollinated plants in a very small space like lettuce or tomatoes or beans or peas or even peppers. Um, you can start with that. And I highly encourage everyone. And, you know, another part of just when I started to recognize the importance of seed was like, it seemed increasingly crazy to, to put such a huge amount of effort and money and time into caring for your soil, uh, creating the space for your garden, going out and planting and digging and going after pests and doing all of these other things that you might be doing, get, setting up your irrigation just right. All, I mean, all of those are very important, but to ignore the seed aspect of it is to just really miss, in my opinion, a, a huge aspect of the whole, the whole thing that is growing food. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it would be kind of like, okay, let's say I'm going to go out and build the greatest computer programming company in the world. I'm going to invest in my infrastructure, my building, uh, all the latest technology, and then I'm going to hire a programmer as my seed in that company that doesn't know how to do five <laughs> lines basic code, right? I mean, he's just, I give him a book. It's yeah. like, get on with it. He might pull it off, but yeah. it's really not the way I want to do things. Yeah, that's that's a great analogy. Yeah. Um, so when you start thinking about saving seed, mm-hmm. you, you never can do it anymore, especially in the, the prepper survivalist, modern survival space, mm-hmm. without thinking of, and these seeds are not genetically modified in any way. You know, I mean, and this this confusion between what is a hybrid and what is a GMO. And I think part of that is people trying to sell shit. Just to be blunt. Yeah. And I think the other part of it, though, is the misinformation campaign by the genetically modified people. Yeah. Who, they're the ones actually trying to equate the two because they're like, well, uh, genetic modification has been with us for thousands of years. No, 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 no. Right? It's not no. Yeah. Selective breeding and, and natural crosses are not shooting uh, genes into a gene sequence with a, with a, with a gene gun, and yeah. they're not using a transmogenic virus to put a seed or a gene from a fish into a cotton plant. Those are totally different. But with hybrids, the big hang-up for people that even that know what a hybrid is, which is like getting my German shepherd and crossing them with a collie and getting a shepherd collie, right? That's exactly. a natural cross. And if those, but if I have a collie, a shepherd collie mix here and a shepherd collie mix there, and I breed those two dogs, I'm not going to get a dog that looks like its parents. Exactly. Uh, eventually yeah. I can prove that out as a new breed. But So people are worried about, do I bring hybrids into my survival garden, right, or my prepper garden, or even my homestead garden, knowing that I'm not going to be able to save the seed from that? I don't even know that that's completely true, but let's just assume that it is. What role do you see for hybrid seed in, in production in those environments? Great question. And, yeah, all, all really good points about about GMOs. And, I mean, we, that's, that's a whole conversation in and of itself, really. But... Um, <clears throat> 
Yeah, hybrids. Uh, a hybrid is just an intentional or unintentional cross of two distinct parents, uh, two distinct uh, varieties within the same species. And it's important to note distinct because if you have, you know, two plants of the same variety, like two true Siberian kale plants that cross with each other, the result of that is not considered a hybrid because they're so genetically similar that they produce something very similar to the parent to the two parents. But if you have, let's say, a true Siberian kale and a red Russian kale, which are very different varieties, but within, they're both Brassica napis, um, the results of that is going to be considered a hybrid because it's the first offspring of uh, two distinct varieties in the same species. Um, something, something happens when, when you take very different genes uh, and, and they cross within a species. The resulting offspring... They, they have something that's known as hybrid vigor. And uh, hybrid vigor essentially is, um, it's kind of this phenomenon where that first generation of that cross grows really, really quickly. It grows fast. It grows with a lot of strength. It grows with a lot of, this is generally speaking, um, resilience to pest pressure or disease. Um, and it's also very uniform. And it's really the uniformity aspect of of the hybrid they're also known as f1 hybrids f1 stands for first filial or first generation uh, and so hybrids have really been um, widely adopted by commercial agriculture mainly because of uniformity so you can plant 10 acres of a hybrid cabbage and they're all going to come up looking practically identical and harvest you can harvest you know acres and acres of the same thing right around the same time because there's just so uniform their growth rate and everything but that vigor is, it's there and it exists. And, um, there is a little bit of kind of a controversy in a way around hybrid vigor and whether it's solely attributed to the fact that it's a hybrid or if it's attributed to the fact that 99% of the money and time and energy over the past 50 years on the university level has gone into producing hybrids rather than classical, classical, like open pollinated breeding. So I think both exist. I think that a lot can be done with classical breeding if there was more resources there to fund it. But I have seen hybrid vigor with my own eyes and it exists. And it just got me thinking like, okay, so whether or not a survival garden uh, where you actually need to grow food for your survival, whether or not that actually uh, is likely to happen in our lifetime, I think that most of us who consider ourselves survivalists or self-sufficient or even in the mindset to be listening to this show and our gardeners probably have played out that scenario in their mind and think about it like okay part of the reason why i'm into subsistence gardening is because i might have to grow my at least some of my own food at some point and putting myself in a scenario in a hypothetical scenario where i have to grow food and let's say i do have a decent seed stock of all sorts of open pollinated, um, or heirloom is also a term that has come to mean open pollinated, even though that's traditionally not what it means. It means, you know, a variety that has been saved over for generations and generations. Um, but it's come to mean open pollinated. So let's say you have, uh, you've got a good seed stock that is going to be stored and viable for many years, but right now, I need to grow food and I need to play to every strength I have. I'm going to grow a hybrid 
in almost every case if it's available. It doesn't make sense necessarily for uh, some of the self-pollinated plants because they self-pollinate. They don't really see as much hybrid vigor as the um, open pollinated or, or like a outcrossing, outbreeding variety. So self-pollinated are like tomatoes, peppers, um, to some extent eggplant, lettuce, peas, beans, and then uh, the cucurbits can also self-pollinate, so squashes and melons. Um, but where you really see hybrid vigor is in the outcrossing variety, so like wind and insect pollinated. So that could be brassicas, all the brassicas, um, kale, broccoli, cabbage, uh, turnips. Um, then you'll see it in corn, um, beets and chard are wind-pollinated, spinach is wind-pollinated. Um, so hybrid vigor is something that I just imagine could really be used to your advantage in a situation of having to grow food. I, I'm curious about your thoughts about that, Jack. Um, I, I think definitely yes. Now, I I tend not to get into the whole thing about, you know, this is so you can survive gardening because right, right. I think, honestly, if we're to a point where people are digging out their seed banks from 10 years ago and noticing that their seeds don't germinate, um, gardens are not going to be the solution because you're going to be dead before you pull the first turnip out of the ground. Yeah. Um, if you want to be growing food, you need to be growing food now. So mm-hmm. the whole concept of hybrid being bad, if the shit hits the fan and the world as we know it ends, uh, I, I just think it's completely irrelevant, right? So yeah. my, my only concern when I bring hybrids on the property is if I want more of this, I'm going to have to buy it. That is the only concern that yep. I have whatsoever. And it's not a huge concern for me because, yeah. well, how many freaking um, – I don't know, uh, Burpee has these savory uh, peppers that look and taste like a habanero, but they're not hot. Well, how many of those do I really need to grow? Right. right? So I can't produce that pepper right. any other way. It's a cool plant. Right. And it's, once you get a bush established, man, that thing will produce a buttload of peppers. Right. So if I buy a $2.99 packet of seed from these guys – and I start six plants this year for it, or 12, I could probably go three seasons doing that before I need to buy another $2.99 packet of seed. So the first thing is it opens up stuff to me I just can't grow any other way. Secondly, as a gardener that's established, I don't care how experienced you are, let's say I move to a new property, I'm establishing new gardens. The vigor of the hybrid gets me into production right away. Yep. I start growing my heirlooms out as I improve my soil, et cetera. I start developing my own seed lines and things like that. Right. But it gives me a greater assurance that I'm going to get something now. Right. And I, I think however you apply that is fine. Uh, another pep- I'm a pepper guy, so mariachi, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? mariachi peppers are awesome. Well, guess what? There is no heirloom equivalent to the mariachi pepper. Uh. There's six sort of, kind of, not really, though. Right. So there's certain plants if you want them, you know, and it's like if I said I will not have a hybrid on my land, then I'm basically saying I got to get rid of my dog. <laughs> it's a hybrid. I mean, I got a pure German Shepherd, but I got this pit bull mixed with a pointer. He's a hybrid. I'm a hybrid, right? Yeah. I'm a hybrid. Yeah, because, exactly. Yeah. Because my dad is pure Ukrainian and my grandmother on the other side is Italian and my grandfather on that side is German. Mm-hmm. So I'm all screwed up. I'm a German, Ukrainian, Italian. No wonder I get hot under the collar. I mean, yeah. you know. So I don't. I have never understood the villainization of hybrids, and I actually think hybridization has a role 
in developing what we're going to get into next, which is land races. Yeah. I want to hold on that for a second. But, I mean, if you look at Seb Holzer, right, and Seb's out throwing his seed out, he's got 15 kinds of turnips and cucumbers and melons and all kinds of crap. And the guy's got this bag of seed, and it, it looks like an, a seed advertisement, you know, where the hands hold it up in the stock photo. Yeah. yeah. But it's like a thousand different freaking seeds. And he's throwing that shit everywhere, and you're like, well, what about cross-pollination? And he just waves his hand at you and makes this German sound. <laughs> <laughs> like, God, I've been doing this for 30 years, dude. Go away. Don't ask me about this crap. Um, yeah. So I think that over time, the land develops its own varieties. Right. And those come from hybridization in every single heirloom, with very rare exceptions. Very rare exceptions comes from a hybrid line that was proved out. Yes. Right? So if I'm growing magenta orach, okay, that's pretty much a wild plant. It, mm-hmm. it really is. But if I'm growing um, German striped tomato, mm-hmm. you ain't finding that in the desert. Yeah. So somebody did breeding work, yep. created a hybrid, and then bred it out over six, seven generations. Stabilized it. Yeah. So to me, the hybrid is the root of the heirloom in the first place. So I think <laughs> we should be growing heirlooms. I think we should be growing hybrids, and I think we should save seed from everything if we have the space and sow the shit out of it and see what happens. That's what I think. Yeah, I, I totally agree, Jack. Uh, I think that you, you mentioned a couple things that are really important, too. I, I think it's important that we see hybrids and heirlooms as not an either-or. So, like you mentioned, you can grow out um, you can grow out a hybrid because you might feel that either A, it's a variety that you really, really like and you want to grow a bunch of it and store it and can it or whatever, or B, you just maybe trust a certain hybrid variety to produce for you better than others. You can grow both at the same time, and if you don't want to save seeds from that hybrid, don't. Uh, if it's an, if it's a cross-pollinating variety, an outcrossing variety, just cut it before it goes to the seed, and you're fine. Um, and you don't even have to worry about that. Uh, so yeah, and I think that a lot of the, the villainized, I mean, all of this said, my seed company, all good things, we to this day don't sell any hybrids yet because we, we just haven't come across one that we really were like, oh, we really want to make this available because it's so awesome. There's a couple that we're considering, but, um, but at the same time, there is some good open pollinated stuff out there that, that have really been intentionally bred. But I do think that a lot of the villainization, that hybrids have received has just simply come from marketing. It's come from marketing of seeds by various companies and claiming that, uh, you know, that, that saving the genetics and saving the losing genetics that we're losing, uh, by purely growing out heirlooms or open pollinated, um, calling things non hybrid and equating that with, you know, some sense of purity. Um, and it's just not true. But that said, uh, you can't always save seeds from hybrids and have them be true. Um, and sometimes you have issues with sterility with hybrids. You save mm-hmm. seeds from a hybrid and, uh, and the offspring, the F2 generation, the second generation will have sterility problems. Um, there's an, uh, maybe we can touch on this a little bit more with land races, but yeah. And you know what? We are hybrids. <laughs> and I think really what we are more likely uh, to put would be the word land races. And, and that's because most likely our parents also were not super, super, for lack of a better word, just distinct pure varieties. Like if you're, let's say, for example, if my mother uh, was Russian and her parents were both Russian and their parents were both Russian for many generations back. And my father was uh, Brazilian. 
and same thing on his side. And if they uh, procreated and created me, I would be a hybrid, basically, because their genetics were so, quote-unquote, kind of pure from those lines of previous generation over generation generation. But for the most part, we're all land races because our parents were all mixed up as well. And that's part of what makes us resilient is that mix of, of, uh, of, of genetics. And um, so in case your listeners aren't familiar with, with land races, what a land race is essentially is uh, a genetically diverse and genetically flexible variety that's adapted to a specific geographical region and is naturally selected uh, for its vigor and resiliency and its ability to produce in varying conditions. So a land race really, really is adapted to place, but isn't selected for really specific traits like most of the varieties that we source now. So we might buy a black beauty eggplant because it produces big black eggplants consistently, um, or a certain tomato variety that produces uh, consistently one one phenotype or like physical expression um, very consistently. A land race is a mix of genetics that produces uh, not, it might have general characteristics. So let's say you're growing a land race and you want to grow uh, a kale land race and you want it to grow tall. You might generally select for height, but for the most part, it has a really wide range of genetic expressions. And that's for the resiliency. And do you have any uh, experience growing land races, Jack, or any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, we're doing it here through the the, the Mars Shepherd stun method, only we're doing it with annuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am allowing certain plants to go ballistic with growth, completely ignoring them, mm-hmm. not harvesting the seed at all, mm-hmm. leaving it out there. And what the birds don't eat, what doesn't rot in the soil, what the chickens don't steal, what the ducks don't take, grows the next year. Mm-hmm. And that's about as naturally selective as you can let it be. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm going more and more toward that model with the development of different lines. Now, right now, the things that we're doing that with are really hardy things like sorghum, cowpea, amaranth, uh, et cetera. And those are beginning to naturalize on the property. And I've only been here a little over two years. Um, right. So we have a long way to go with that. But at Perma Ethos on the farm up there, for instance, with the new design Nick Ferguson and I just came up with for the first 18 acres of, of civopastor development, we're going to not alley crop, but what we're going to call an ally crop of annual vegetables across 18 acres. Oh, wow. And we're going to carpet bomb seed everything you can imagine. That's amazing. And we're going to take the approach of, well, let's say we're doing Roma tomatoes. Or mm-hmm. Let's say we're doing a determinate variety of tomato because we'll want to do a lot of canning for the farm staff up there. Right. So that particular variety we of a bush determinate we might put in um, a 50-foot or 50-yard swath of berm. Now, there might be a lot of other stuff in there, mm-hmm. but only that variety will be in that spot. And our hope isn't so much just that we can get a really good seed crop by killing the weaklings mm-hmm. um, from the first year, but also that a lot of it will naturalize. Nice. And the things that naturalize are the ones, and it's a kind of the 
you know, the Fukuoka concept is that where do you plant your vegetables? They don't. They they plant themselves. Yeah. <laughs> and, Absolutely. And generation after generation, you start to develop things that are really in that land race world because, you know, no one selectively breeds the, your Russian parents, right? Right. They, they took care of that themselves. They did their thing. And it's amazing once you start taking care of soil and developing habitat and letting just like just don't be a pig about it, right? Just let some of it go. Yeah. You don't have to pick everything, you don't have to get every ounce of production. If you let some of it go, all of a sudden you start seeing things like tomatoes growing in your neighbor's front yard. Right? Yeah. Or you're mowing the lawn and you're like, I know that smell. <laughs> what the hell is that? that's that's cilantro. Yeah. And there's cilantro <laughs> growing out in the yard. Yeah. And I've had that happen in so many places, including some environments. I call myself a masochist. I've taken on now, this is the second property that people look at and go, really? <laughs> what you, What do you have against soil? You know? Yeah. I just have to make your life hard. <laughs> and, and even on the property in Arkansas, which was much tougher than this, two years into it, there's cucumbers growing up a tree, mm. et cetera. Um, I threw out a bunch of butternut last year, just butternut seed just everywhere. None of it really seemed to do good. But, I mean, it's 115 degrees. It's not getting watered. Wow. And yesterday I'm out refilling the duck tanks, and I'm looking at this oak tree where I never threw any butternut seed, by the way. And I look up the tree, and I see a vine. Oh, my God. And it's hard to see because it's glaring and stuff. So I'm thinking, and I have a lot of trees over there that I've planted muscadines up. And I go, I don't remember planting a grape up that tree. And I go over there, and it's a butternut vine. Oh, my gosh. And it's about 16 feet up the tree now. Wow. I hope it fruits because it, it looks like it must have like the ducks found an old one and one of them crafted out or something and it's in the shade. But if that vine fruits, you can bet that seed's going to get a little bit babied. Yeah, that's what I want to see more and more people do is have your gardens, have your cultivated locations, buy your seed from a known source, think about your separation distances, but take all the land that you can't possibly be that meticulous with. Seed the shit out of it. Yeah. Seed it with clover yeah. and seed it with vegetables and seed it with daikon. Yeah. And seed it with turnip and stuff will grow. It's amazing. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. That's that's a great story. <laughs> the butternut growing up the oak tree. That's awesome. Yeah. And you know, when when we're growing, when we're growing food, when we're growing seed, whether it's uh, an individual variety or or a land race. Um, you know, we can make our own selections, but a lot of the selection can just happen naturally. And if you pay attention to that, you can really benefit from encouraging that. So your butternut uh, story is a great example of that. You know, most of it maybe didn't take, but this one plant did in the shade of an oak tree and climbed. And if you save seed from that, whatever the genetics were in that line that allowed it to do what it did, you're going to be carrying that on. And it's already going to be um, so adapted to your land compared to anything that you could ever buy. Super yeah, exciting. definitely. Definitely. There's um, a guy I can't think of now. I'm going to try to get onto his place. He does chestnuts and hazelnuts. Hmm. He's up near Mark Shepherd's where I'm going next week, and I can't think of the name of his pr property now. But he was speaking about perennials, but I, I think the same thing's true of annuals. He said that people always say, I want to create a new line of something, and I want it to be highly survivable, drought-resistant, grow tall, be stocky, taste good, etc. 
And he's like, if you come up with 10 trades you want, you're trying to select for those 10 trades, it'll take you like 60,000 years to, to get that, right? If you're, if you're, if you're calling for that. But he's like, in the first round, you select for two traits. And the first one needs to be survivability. Yep. Right? Find what survives. If it yep. tastes like shit, that's okay. Yep. Keep growing more of it. Sooner or later, you'll find genes that taste good and then start selecting for that. But start out in the beginning, select for two traits, uh, early germination or early flowering or what have you, and it doesn't die. Yeah. Right? And just find at first what doesn't die and work with that. Yep. And that means you need to seed way more than you think you do. Absolutely. And don't baby it. That's super let it, important. Let it die. Yeah. Now, one thing i got to point out, if you overseed – all in one little spot where the plants they'll choke themselves to death. That's yep. not we got to spread the seed out, guys. But um, so I'm you know I'm, I'm actually really excited about taking more and more of that approach as I get more and more of this land to where well I can put a seed on it and it'll grow because yeah uh, there's places now where it just you know it, you can only push this stun stuff. Yep. So far, these people that live in the Northeast with these deep dark soils and deep grasses that things can go down inside of and they get this stuff called rain all summer long. I'm, I'm very envious. What, what is that, Jack? I, 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 I don't know. I went to West Virginia last week and it was raining oh, and I, I understood what mud was, but I couldn't remember oh, what this stuff that falls out of the sky was called. So I had to Google it. It turns out it's called rain. Oh, it's really water falls from these things called clouds. No lands on the ground. <laughs> it makes shit grow. Uh, <laughs> The inside joke, of course, is whenever I want rain, all I have to do is have a, a gathering here. Yeah. <laughs> and when people are camping, it will, and it, you know, I got one in November, I bet you. Uh, yeah. Unless Stephen Harris comes, because he repels rain, apparently. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I've had five events, rain, and I don't mean mist, I mean pouring rain. Oh, my gosh. Four. And the one Stephen Harris was at, not a drop. Nice. He brings good weather for events, yeah. but. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we definitely need some rain out here too. Well, you're um, Cali, right? Yeah, Southern California. We're in. This is year. There's a song that even says that it doesn't rain there. What? I would say that again. There's a song that even says it doesn't rain. There. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's an old song. It never rains in sunny Southern California. Oh man, five years ago we had uh, almost a record rain year. It was more than twice the average, and then the last three. You know, this will be four winters have been way below average and it's this is kind of the make it or break it winter if we don't get rain here there's something major is gonna gonna happen i mean i don't who knows but did you hear the plan that the geniuses running your state have to uh, reduce drought problems uh no they this is not on the onion this is serious <laughs> they they think they can help the drought problem by cutting down 10 percent of the trees oh my god you just i mean oh. Yeah. Some people shouldn't be in charge of anything. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. The solution to the drought problem is planting trees. There's this orographic effect. Exactly. Never mind. We're We're going to go off top. We're serving like crazy out here, but the one thing we are using, the little water that we have, is to keep the trees alive. Yeah. More important than anything. But yeah, uh, I mean, we could talk about drought all day (laughs) and trees and and water and rain, and we really need it here too. but I wanted to I wanted to touch on a couple of points you just made, Jack, if I could. Sure. Um, about uh, about sowing seed for an intentional uh, grow out of something. If, so if you're wanting to breed um, your own variety or make your own selections of a variety, 
or even better, start your own land race. There's a couple of things that are really super important, both you just mentioned. Um, one is uh, your first year of growing, you don't want to be that selective. You want to select, like you said, or like you said, Mark Shepard said, uh, for just a couple of traits. You don't want to select for tall and uh, and orange and um, having a certain leaf pattern. You don't want to get too cute with it in year one. Just select for vigor. Select for, you know, whether it's fast germination or uh, resistance to a particular disease. Maybe maybe you're growing a squash land race, and in your area, uh, downy mildew just takes out your plants every year. Well, what you're going to do is start with as much genetics as possible, so source as many varieties within that species as you can from as many different sources, and that's really important, that's, too. You know what? That's a really great point. Like, if you wanted to make, like, the most badass butternut squash, uh-huh. don't buy butternut squash just from Victory Seed Company. Right. Buy from Terroir, buy from Victory, buy yep. from Bacon Creek, get some from the old lady down the road. Yep. Get as much genetics into the mix as you can. Yep. Do it. Yeah, exactly. Even if it's one variety, like I love Waltham butternut. I want my own adapted to my backyard Waltham butternut. Buy Waltham butternut from 10 companies and, and plant. And then the other point you made, overplant. Whether growing for seed or growing for food, this has been one of the biggest uh, aspects of my success with growing food and seed is to plant more than you need. And I know that can be challenging for folks that don't have a lot of space, but you can do this too with small space with inbreeding crops, like I mentioned. You can, if you can grow 10 tomato plants of a variety you want to breed, do it and get the seed grow from 10 different seeds from 10 different sources. Um, you can do it on a small scale too. Um, but like you said, if you sow a lot of seed in a small space, uh, you're going to have to thin and don't be afraid to thin. I don't know how many times I've, I've done a consultation for somebody, for somebody's garden and they've got, they sowed a hundred beet seeds in, in 18 inches of a row and, mm-hmm. and it's so choked out. They're like, they're just not growing. Now, well, you got to go in there and you got to thin out the weak ones. Yep. And they're like, but I can't do that. I can't kill the plant. I'm like, well, you're not going to get any help from me. They're really good. <laughs> a little like that. Get them out of there, man. I mean, get them out. Yeah, you, I plant lettuce this way. I think you'll like this. I take a, a small ball jar. Uh-huh. I put a bunch of lettuce seed in it, and I take the lid and I drill holes in it like a big pepper shaker, uh-huh. and just sprinkle them out on the bed. Oh, that's cool. I like that. Spread them out nice and even. They don't stick to your hands because lettuce just sticks to you when it's if it gets the most remotely amount of damp. Yeah. I uh, put a couple a little tablespoon of rice in there with them to keep them dry. That's a and great idea. And every time idea. you get more lettuce, you just go out and sprinkle them. I love well, that. Yeah. You know, you're gonna get some big lettuce by the end of it, but you're gonna get a whole bunch of little microgreen lettuce. Yeah, exactly. Which is great. Or I'll do like I plant my cucumbers. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Well, it takes them a few weeks, you know, mm-hmm. to really occupy space. Interplant that shit with lettuce. Yeah. And and by the time the cucumbers take over, you've eaten a lot of lettuce. Yeah. And make let one or two of the healthiest plants go, and you know there's your seed for next year. Absolutely, absolutely, and and yeah, and the the overplanting and the thinning. So when you're growing seed, when you're growing for seed intentionally, you want to give yourself as much opportunity for selection as possible. So even if in that first year you're only going to be selecting for for vigor or disease resistance or something like that. You're going to want as many plants as possible to select from. And amongst the plants that remain 
in the breeding population, you're going to want to give them as much space as you can afford. So what that means is essentially thinning is okay, thinning is good. Um, now, with that said, if you're growing an outcrossing variety, if you're growing something that pollinates with wind or insects, you need to maintain a decent population. And the more it's outcrossing, like the extreme example would be corn, you know, that sure. pollen can blow for miles. You need a big population of that to keep the genetics rich enough and to not experience what's called inbreeding depression. So if you, if you grow out a whole bunch of corn from various different varieties, you're starting a land race and you really like, uh, you know, only 10 of the plants and you save seed from only 10, unless you grow that out and cross it back with something else, you're going to have major issues with inbreeding depression. So sure. you want to make sure you allow as many plants as you can with, with your space to breed. Yeah. So um, you have any thoughts on that, Jack? Well, yeah, definitely. I mean, like corn is the one I think people maybe a little bit overreact to. Yeah. Um, with some other genetics coming in there, but like you said, you got to have just to get a good crop with corn, you got to have a significant stand. Yeah. So it will pollinate itself, um, which should actually make you feel a little bit better about the fact that somebody's corn pollen from 20 miles down the road may very well have blown into your area. Yeah. It's the preponderance of of, of the crop. And, I mean, with corn, like, so one of the things that makes me think of when people forget about corn is, well, you do know that the indigenous peoples in Mexico, they cultivate their corn, plant soente along the rows of corn because they feel that a little bit of the wild genetics getting in there mm. strengthens their corn. Mm -hmm. So we can't get over paranoid about this cross-pollination yep. thing, but your point about making sure the density there is very important. Yep. Um, you know, and, and what I learned so far with sorghum is, boy, sorghum cross-pollinates. So mm -hmm. I'm at a point now where I have to pick a variety mm -hmm. to run mm -hmm. with. I trialed four varieties. I say I, I didn't actually really plant much sorghum, but a lot of it naturalized. And I got a lot of, yeah, that's not really the way it's supposed to look. Like, mm -hmm. birds eat it, though. I mean, that, in the mm -hmm. end, with sorghum for me, since I'm not growing it for myself, mm -hmm. I might just let it all... Go nuts. But if I only have 10 sorghum plants, not only am I not going to get a good genetic base for my seed, I'm not going to get a good crop to begin with. Right, right. Because it's not enough. You know, there's just not enough there. Right. Um, I think other things are like that, too, like amaranths and, you know. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I had one. I was I'm really kind of bummed about it. The geese left it alone for so long. Mm. And it's from it was from seed that fell on the ground or something from a year ago and mm -hmm. grew and then replanted itself. It was this big Japanese red amaranth that had a head on it the size of like a gallon milk jug. Oh wow! And I was I went I was getting ready to leave and I'm like, yeah, they left it alone all year. It'll be fine. Came back, they ate the head right off it, so that's gone. <laughs> but hopefully they'll go plant some for me. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, that the example of uh, of the 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 Mexican people growing teosinte next to modern corn is is really that's one of the the principles of maintaining a land race is to occasionally reintroduce uh genetics continue to introduce genetics and i actually i i want to encourage everyone who's listening who who has a garden to try and start a land race of something this year um, if you're in a mild climate in the fall, you can start it now by planting uh, a biennial. So something that's going to overwinter and go to seed next year. And that could be beets or chard. 
Um, that could be kale. most of the brassicas. Yeah, kale. Kale is absolutely my favorite, and I always use that one as the example because it's so hearty, it's so nutritious. There's enough of a genetic mix that you really can have a true awesome land race from it. So um, if you're able to plant that still this year, go for it. And I that, think parsley would be another great one. Parsley? Parsley would be awesome because you get a billion seeds. Yeah. Uh, it's, in, it's an inherently useful herb. Yep. And when it goes, when, you know, it grows and it grows and then it changes form when it goes into its biannual state and it sends that stalk up. When it sends that thing up, the flower head on it, you just walk by and it's like, oh, no, with a billion pollinators on it. Yeah. And in the words of Bill Mollison, once you get parsley thick, you'll have it forever. So, nice. And it's, it's just a hearty, hearty thing. Basil is a, now that wouldn't be good for now. Yeah. Um, but basil has been my most reliable comeback on its own herb. Really? And I just, I, I let it grow until it's got the big seed heads on it, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and then I just strip them off and just start chucking them. Nice. Just chuck them wherever and just don't even worry about it. And, well, what about the thousand to die? I don't care. For every thousand to die, five will show up somewhere next year. Yeah. Yeah. And that's another plant that when it's in flower, <clears throat> the bees are on it, the bumblebees are on it, the wasps are on it. And so yeah. those are ones that are easy. So like the basil, I would say, you know. Yep. Find a guy with a garden that has basil right now and say, can I have some seed? He'll probably be like, I don't care. Yep. And you can get a gallon of basil seed yep. off of the plant. And when you guys sell it, right, like, so you guys, you know, break it loose and separate all the little seeds out so you mm -hmm. can package it. Mm -hmm. When mm -hmm. I do basil that way, there's a reason it's in that little papery capsule. Mm -hmm. Text it through the winter. Just strip uh -huh. it and toss it. Nice. You know, yep. and some of it will hybridize, and I've got basil popping up that's, eh, it's not really that interesting. i got basil popping up, like, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, it's also something to geese eat. Yeah. But. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Basil-flavored goose doesn't sound bad either. No, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a good one, too. Uh, arugula is a good one. It really readily oh, self-seeds. Great point. Yeah, Ben yeah. Falk has a patch that he just calls the Eternal Arugula Patch. Oh, and so he's just, good. He just keeps throwing seed in there to keep the genetics expanding every once in a while. And, yeah, um, geese also eat arugula, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> See, the geese, like geese eat a lot. They're useful life cycle. They really are. Yeah. I think they might be in the system a bit too early. So they yeah. might need um, Thanksgiving goose. Yeah, yeah. New Year's goose and Christmas <laughs> goose. And yeah. Nice. <laughs> yeah, so, but arugula is a great one. Um, I don't know if you know this. Um it act, like you know you can make pesto with basil. Pesto made with arugula is badass. It's true. It's amazing. Yeah, and it's super nutritious, and it just totally self seeds. Uh, I mean, you can do what you were just describing by tossing seeds wherever, and they'll come up. Assuming it rains, they'll come up, or they get water. But they self seed right where they were grown pretty well. And if you let it go to seed, you get a lot of seed from from a small patch. It's true. A ton. Yeah. Little black. Yep. Seeds. So, Jack, I would I would just encourage all of your listeners to to experiment with a land race. And there's a couple of things I just want to mention um, in starting out uh, with with doing it intentionally. And uh, that is that you want to start out with with as many varieties as you can. But a minimum, uh, I would suggest, would a minimum would be three, because if you do two, what you're going to have is um, a hybrid. You'll actually have two variations of of hybrids because the pollen 
and in the seed oh, might yeah. come from, you might have pollen coming from one side and pollinating the other and then and vice versa you'll have the pollen parent and the seed parent and you'll have two slightly different hybrids but i would suggest starting with at least three and um to describe i wonder if i can paint a picture of how that cross would work but let's say you have three varieties of kale um and you plant uh enough so that you can have 10 plants of each variety going to seed and crossing up with each other, which should be plenty to maintain the genetics. Um, and so what you're going to have is within those 10 plants, you'll have varieties A, B, and C, and A is going to pollinate A some of the time, same with B and C. So you'll have some of the quote-unquote open-pollinated or heirloom um, offspring from that, but you'll also have an AB hybrid, a BA hybrid, an AC hybrid, a CA hybrid, and then a BC hybrid, and a CB hybrid. So mm. you'll have six different F1s along with three uh, carried-on open-pollinated original varieties. So from a, the first year, which we'll, we'll call the original mass cross, that first year you're going to have uh, nine potentially different varieties growing from that first year of Save Seed. And what I, what I was talking about earlier, what we were talking about earlier with the hybrid vigor, that's the beauty of the land race, is that you experience hybrid vigor over and over and over and over and over, especially if you reintroduce some genetics once in a while. You don't have to do it every year, but you save seed from that first year, that first mass cross, and you see like just starting with three varieties, you have nine that you're going to be working with the second year. So imagine if you start with 10 varieties, the, the, all of that hybridization that's going to go on. So you plant out the, all of the F1s, the first generation crosses from those hybrids that are part of your land race. That, that first year is just going to explode. You're going to see such an amazing variation of, uh, phenotypes or the physical expressions, the different colors, different sizes, different shapes. And they're going to be so vigorous. And then you're going to save seed from that and do it again. And it's just going to continue. The hybridization is going to compound and it's going to carry on year over year. And what you're doing at the same time is highly adapting um, this genetically rich uh, variety to your growing space. And the value of that just cannot be understated because everyone has different soil, has different environment, different weather, different pests present, different disease. And every year you do it, you can be as intentional or unintentional as you want with your selections. You can, like I said, if you have a particularly bad disease, um, let me use an example here. Um, out here, we have something called a bagrata bug. Have you heard of this? Yep. We have that that's just decimating uh, brassicas. And I have yet to hear of somebody experimenting by doing a land race and seeing what comes up that actually survives the Bagrata bug. But that would be an amazing thing to do, would be to just mix it up as much as you can that first year. And whatever lives, you save seed from that. And you start with those genetics. Um, but you really can select for anything you want. And you just got to start with at least three, but five or more with really no limit of the same species. You can include hybrids in that cross if you want. Um, there's one thing to note. Um, I don't know if you know about this, Jack. You probably do. Um, it's called cytoplasmic male sterility. Um, it's one so, method that's used for producing some hybrids. 
um, it makes it much easier to produce a hybrid if one of the lines actually doesn't even produce pollen. Correct. So what you're actually going to be looking for, if you include a hybrid, you're going to want to, um, the first year you save seeds from that, you're going to want to look at the flowers. And this is kind of a little bit next level. So if you're not into doing this, just don't use hybrids. But if you want to, you can you can mix up the genetics even more. You're going to want to look at the flowers of the plant um, and see, look at the anther of the flower. So that's that's the part um, that's producing the pollen. And uh, some crops that do have male sterility are carrots, cabbage, broccoli, onions, and beets. So if you include a hybrid of any of those, just keep your eye out for that. Not all of them do, and it's not that big of a deal. If you see the male sterility, just cut the plant out. But for the sake of just trying the first year, you can go ahead and avoid hybrids in your land race. Um, and other than that, it's pretty much it's pretty much an open game. Just mix it up as much as you can and let it go. Um, yeah, do you have any thoughts on that? No, I mean I think that's just sound advice. Yeah. Like, I mean, I if I was going to do this, I would probably suggest starting with you know heirlooms, open pollinated varieties, just yep. because. Well, I mean, if you if you get a catalog like Baker Creek's catalog and you flip mm-hmm. through it, you'll see that it's not like you're going to have a hard time finding yeah. <laughs> three to five varieties of something that are cool. Yeah. Um, and I, I do want to touch on something you said b- sure. before, though, about how actually you can have a different result uh, depending on which flower contributed a pollen to the other flower. Yeah. So I, I found this guy on YouTube a couple of years ago, and I did find the video, so I'll post it with the show notes, where... He wanted to see, because you know when you grow a jalapeno pepper, you get like a kabillion peppers on a plant. Yeah. If you grow a green pepper, you get, you know, a dozen peppers on a plant. Yeah. So he wanted to see, can I make the green pepper produce like a crap ton of green peppers by crossing a like a California bell or something like that with a jalapeno? So he manually pollinated the one pepper with the other and then mm-hmm. saved the seed and planted the subsequent generations. Mm-hmm. And he was actually able to get a, a somewhat small but extremely prolific green pepper, which has a little hint of that jalapeno bite and that jalapeno. There's mm. a tank jalapeno, mm-hmm. too. And when he went one direction, you got something that was very much what he was looking for. Mm-hmm. I don't even remember what the other result was, but it really wasn't what he was looking for. Mm-hmm. And that was just by changing the direction. Mm-hmm. As to who contributed the pollen. So, you know, I guess if you were to take it back to the yep. dog analogy, yep. shepherd collie bred from a male shepherd to female collie might look significantly different than a shepherd collie bred from the other way around. Or yep. I'm I'm working with a chicken now that I call the red pharaoh, which is a Egyptian Faomi crossed with a Rhode Island red. Well, that's a Faomi hen. Mm. Because the, because the roosters pissed me off, so I killed them. <laughs> so, so that's what was left is the hen and the the Rhode Island red rooster. Yeah, well, that bird's awesome looking. The females are uh-huh. like usually in birds, the the male gets all the looks and the female doesn't. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the male in this looks like well, eh, he's that's that's nice, you know, kind of good good job. But the the females are gorgeous. Really? Well, I'm sure, if I flipped to that and I bred a Rhode Island female, you know, I pull it to a male Egyptian Faomi, I would not get that same look. Yep. It just wouldn't. It's like this red checkerboard and look with this golden mm. long. The females almost have feathers that look more rooster-like. Mm-hmm. Like on their necks, that long feathers. Mm-hmm. So I think that's something else to consider. Like when you do a land race, 
that's I never thought about it. Yeah. But that's certainly factoring in there. There's this back and forth. So yeah. it's not just A A B hybrid. It's a it's an A B where A is contributing the pollen mm-hmm. and it's a it's let's say a, an A B and a B A. Mm-hmm. And then those are all multiplied the second year. Yep. When they go into that, so it, it makes me excited <laughs> for what we're going to be doing. We got 18 acres to play with on this. Yeah. Oh wow. Plus the vegetables are like maybe there's some cash in those. Yeah. There's certainly going to be more than we can eat on the farm. Yep. But it's really more about hey, we can put a couple thousand dollars worth of seed up here. Yep. And what can we produce? How exciting! Yeah, yeah that's so yeah. cool. Especially in a climate where it rains. Yeah. Shit grows. I mean, I'm just. Yeah, I don't know what to do with myself. I went up there. We put in like this terrace that the Wilfers are supposed to put fill into. So we just put the uh, put some logs in on contour, uh-huh. and they hadn't got to filling it in yet. But we had thrown a couple shovelfuls of uh, compost in the one spot where we had plugged kind of a hole and just figured we'd put some compost on top of it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I went back in five weeks, and apparently there were some tomato seeds in the compost that didn't get burned up, and there's foot and a half tall tomato plants. Wow. With stalks as big around as my thumb. Oh, wow. With blossoms on them in five weeks. Amazing. I'm like, that's that, if there's anything I missed about the Northeast, it's the way that things grow up there. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and yeah, that's that's a good point you made with the ABBA, um, uh, the, the different parents. That's actually your point. I really never but thought of it. You had a good example, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you said you're a pepper guy. I'm a squash guy. And uh, mm-hmm. one year, a winter squash guy in particular, I love winter squash. And winter squash are super fun because they can self-pollinate without having any inbreeding depression, but they also cross-pollinate, and they're very easy to hand-pollinate. So yep. as far as, like, geeking out on a breeding project, winter squash is amazing. Which is Well, the nice thing with that is no, you don't need Q-tips and crap, right? Or no, feathers. no, right? You grab a whole male plant. Yep. Whole male flower, yank the blossoms off, yep. just start dabbing shit. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And one year, my two favorite winter squashes so far uh, are Burgess Buttercup, which I've never eaten one that, in my opinion, that tasted so amazing. That's my favorite eating winter squash. And another one is a uh, sweet meat, um, which is just an incredible storage squash, and it's almost as good to eat as the Burgess. So mm-hmm. I did a, an intentional, a hand pollinated cross of those one year, and I did. I did, you know, the male flower from the from the sweet meat to the female flower of the Burgess and vice versa and got when I grew out those F1s, they were very different. Um, mm. I ended up abandoning it because I didn't like the result as much as I liked either of the parents. <laughs> but, um, yeah, something, you know, with uh, the genetics being all mixed up, the subsequent, the subsequent uh, years with your land race, something that happens um, with the F2 generation, so F1s are all typically really uniform, like I had mentioned, the F2s are just like a genetic wild ride. If you grow, if you save seeds from a hybrid and you grow out that F2, you will have some variation on either of the original parents that produced the F1, but you'll also get some crazy stuff. So you do your land race the first year, you grow out all of those uh, in the second year, which has all of the F1 crosses from the first year's cross. The third year, growing out all of the F2s in the land race, you're going to see an absolute explosion of genetics, and it's going to be super fun to select from that. Yeah. And uh, yeah. go ahead. No, go ahead. Um, and one thing I, I wanted to mention, too, is in that original mass cross, that first planting, it's good to to plant a relatively equal amount of all of the different varieties. 
uh, which that might seem obvious, but uh, that'll keep the, the the crossing kind of equal between everybody and and ensure the biggest uh, the diversity. Yeah, um, and yeah, select for vigor. Um, the, the your main selections. So roguing is the main way that that you're going to be selecting is or like a negative selection is removing what you don't want rather than only keeping what you do want to keep it as rich as possible. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's really one of the things that's a, a big difference for the people that do this successfully over time. Like I mentioned, Holzer. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not about selecting what you do want. It's just about calling what you don't. If yep. a plant produces crappy, mm-hmm. I just I'm not taking seed from that plant. Everything that's good, I'll take seed from. Yeah, and I'll plant it again, and I'll plant it again, and yeah. I'll plant it again. And when something's crappy, and I know for the home gardener, sometimes that's hard to get your head around because yeah. you've got these five little, <laughs> six little beds, mm-hmm. and you just don't have the space. But you know, if you were planting butternuts in all those. Uh, where all the holly bushes and stuff are, mm-hmm. just right in there with them, you might find you have more space than you think. Or, like, another thing I do is I do have one little patch of annual beds for production beds. Mm-hmm. Even though I have all this crazy permaculture stuff going on, I have six beds, irrigation put in, turn two valves, they water themselves, they're flat, they're square. Right. You know, typical right. garden beds. Right. And I'll put things in there like melons or squash that are vining crops. I plant them right at the end of the bed. And nice. I train them out into the grass. Nice. So they take up no bed space whatsoever. So you can have tomatoes yep. that are right up to that butternut squash. And that butternut squash, if you orient it so that that's, that vine is pointed at where the sun comes up in the morning, that vine will run, you know, 20 feet out in the yard if you, if you wanted to. And when people say, well, what do I do about mowing? Mow around the vine. Mm-hmm. You know, don't worry yeah. about it. There'll be some grass there yep. until the vine dies, yep. whatever. Yep. And squash, I'm with you on, dude, because with butternut even, right, just plain old Waltham butternut, one year I grew a bunch of it, and I'm like, how long will this really keep if I don't do anything? So I took this butternut, and I sat it in the window seat in our kitchen. And after, like, three weeks, my wife goes, when are you going to get rid of that squash? And I said, when it goes bad. <laughs> this is, like, yeah. end of August, right? <laughs> <laughs> So like May of the next year, she's like, it's starting to get black freckles. I think your experiment's oh, wow. over. And so it sat there. Now there was we had the solar screen, so it's not like blazing sun, but in a window from August to May. And I would have eaten it in April. By May, she was right. I wouldn't have eaten it then. It was <laughs> yeah. It was plenty good for chickens, I imagine. But yeah. so that's just a great example of a crop that stores well. Yep. And I look at that for organic, beyond organic producers. Yep. There's probably an opportunity there. Oh, yeah. Because right now you go to the store, it's like this glut of winter squash, right? Yep. Thanksgiving's coming, all that jazz. Well, if you held that over and put it into your market in February, mm-hmm. that's not, you know, there's not exactly a ton of it being brought to market at that point, maybe in Southern Cal or something, right. but. You know, in in the rest of the country. Yeah. Um. So I think there's an opportunity there. Totally. To not half. Like, if I pick tomatoes today, and they're fresh tomatoes, and I'm picking them vine ripe. I got to get them into somebody's hands quick. Yeah. But butternut, I mean, makes great soup, and it. Oh, it's so good. It hangs out for a long time. Oh, you know, winter squash is where it's at for sure. Yeah, and you know, if if anyone wants to um, 
to save seeds from a squash that they buy at a farmer's market or even the supermarket, uh, they don't really produce hybrid squashes with uh, with the male sterility, with this uh, cytoplasmic male sterility. So you're safe with that. If you wanted to save seeds from a squash and regrow it, even if it is a hybrid, you can play around with those genetics or include it in the land race. Well, and if it's not um, like a hybrid variety, if it's a butternut, for mm-hmm. instance, right, mm-hmm. and you buy it at the store, well, it can be cross-pollinated with, first of all, stop. But second of all, if you think about the way somebody farms butternut squash, mm-hmm. they're not putting 20 different squash plants into a field. Yeah. They're doing mass production. Yeah, they're doing acres of it, right? Yep. So there, the, the, <laughs> yes, there could be some acorn squash across the way that the bee flew over and did, or whatever. But mm-hmm. odds are, when you buy, and this is, I think, what people don't realize: if you're buying a mass-produced product in the agricultural world, mm-hmm. unless it itself is a hybrid, it's probably crossed with itself. Yeah. Because they don't, they don't do yeah. that. Yeah. You know, or yep. if you look like apples, um, uh, you're maybe not going to get a great apple tree. But if you saved apple seeds from a Fuji apple, odds are it was pollinated with Fuji pollen because in the orchards, right. what do they do? This is like the Fuji block, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you can you can play around with stuff from farmers markets and yep. and and uh, you know stores and stuff. Yep. And I don't know about you, I don't worry about whether the seeds organic or not. No. What a little tiny bit, uh, at least when I'm starting out with a new group. I mean, yeah. whatever could be in that seed is far less important than what the plant's going to experience on my property. Yeah. If if I can source it organic, I do. But uh, if if it's more important for me to just have that variety's genetics, I don't worry about it. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And yeah, I... And, I, I really, again, just want to encourage folks to try this out. I, it just lights me up, this idea of land races for subsistence and for survival gardens. I, I can't think of a better ally to carry into you know, whatever might be coming in the future than having land race varieties adapted to your growing area. And I know it all sometimes can kind of sound complicated, but it really isn't. Um, but, Jack, I, I've created a, a, an infographic for your listeners if they want to download it um, for free from my website, uh, they can go to theseedkeepers.com forward slash land race, and I'll have that up for them. And it just kind of lines out everything that I've talked about with land races and how to, and uh, and anyone can feel free to get in touch with me uh, if they have any questions. There's my, The contact is on my website as well. And I I would just, I'm so excited about this concept that, I, I just cannot think of a better ally for a subsistence garden. Well, I agree, and I mean, I look at it this way. Let's say that somebody says, well, you know what? To get that one plant, I've got to plant a 1,000 seeds. Well, good, plant 10,000 seeds. They're cheap. In the yeah. end, they're cheap, especially if you start yep. saving your own. Yep. I mean, I'm sure you've picked up a couple um, you know, lettuce plants that have gone to seed and banged them on a, the side of a five-gallon bucket. Yep, and the amount of seed from four or five black seeded Simpsons uh, oh, yeah. plants, for instance, it's it's a billion. Yeah. So yeah, land race things working. I just fill out the form <laughs> to get to get it. So when you see somebody who's named Jack Jack, it's me. Nice. Because it That's when I great. clicked on the form, it auto filled with Jack. So. Oh great. 
So <laughs> that's awesome. So I'm your first subscriber from the show. All right. Uh, and I appreciate you being with us here today, man. I mean, it's been great. Thanks so much, Jack. Yeah, it's been super fun to talk about all this stuff. I can get pretty geeky with it, but it's I think it's important and and just it's fun. It's fun to play around with plants. I mean, the plants that we're growing, you know, they're they're all pretty domesticated at this point and we might as well just bring that genetic diversity back and and grow what's best for us and for our own growing spaces. And, and thank you so much for having me. It's it's been great talking with you. Well, let people know what, again about your website. What what else is there? You've got sure. some other stuff going on there. You've got some products even. Yeah, yeah. The website again is theseedkeepers.com, and um, uh, there's a blog on there with a number of articles that are mainly educational, having to do with soil and seed saving. And I also, I build and sell um, screens for sifting and cleaning seeds. And I build those out of stainless steel and uh, cedar. So they're really great for drying seeds or drying and sifting herbs. And, and these are literally the screens that I use and have used for years to clean um, most of the seed that has been sold through, uh, through All Good Things, All Good Things Organic Seeds. Um, is the seed company that I that I own with my friend, and um, so I've cleaned hundreds of species of seeds with these screens, and it's just an invaluable tool for for a seed saver. Um, and if you wanted to to check out the seed company, All Good Things Organic Seeds, uh, the website there is plantgoodseed.com, and uh, we've got a couple hundred different varieties, a lot of excellent uh, medicinal uh, plants and herbs, and. And I, you know, I started the company, we started the company just feeling really strongly about quality and, and that continues. We really want to just put out the best quality seed for folks and can be reached through either, through either website. I'd be happy to, to chat with your listeners about anything regarding any of these subjects. And yeah. Okay, man. Well, Justin, again, I thank you for being on the air with us today. Thanks a lot, Jack. Take care. All right, folks. So with that, this has been Jack Spierka today along with Justin Hune, helping you figure out how to live that better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
Yeah.